Sarah. Hey, Chris, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Welcome, everyone, to a new year of the Sausage of Science. This will be the second episode of the new year. So for those of you listening, we are the Sausage of Science. I'm Chris. And I'm Kara. And we're sponsored by the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology. Our newest partner in this wonderful podcast endeavor. And we're super excited in the new year. We are going to be coming to you weekly. Anyway, this episode is another one of our kind of memorial episodes that we have been doing recently. And this one in particular is going to be on Frank Marlowe, who passed away on September 25th of 2019. Uh, And he's had an immense impact on our field through several like theoretical frameworks, looking at, especially with the the Hadza hunter-gatherers, but he's looked at life history, he's looked at sexual selection, human behavior, evolution. He's just had a monstrous impact on our field. And as we've done with C. Loring Brace and Napoleon Shagnon, we thought it would be nice to do a memorial episode. And we are inviting on two of his former students today, Dr. Alyssa Crittenden and Dr. Peter Gray. And the reason this one is a little bit later than the other two is just it takes time. We wanted to have a conversation or witness the conversation between two previous students and time slips away from everyone. So apologies to anyone who feels that this is well past when he passed, but we remember and we want other folks to recognize the value that these individuals have contributed to the discipline. And I think one of our goals going forward is is gonna be to follow up and, and do interviews with folks while they're still here. I feel somewhat guilty that, you know, we, we start talking about some of these folks after they pass and they've made such monumental contributions to the field. And I know you can only do what you can do, there it is, you know. Yeah, and you know, scheduling is tough. And it's often the, the big wigs in the field who have the tightest schedules, so. You know, we, we often interview folks whose articles have recently come out, right? So, so our priority tends to be that. And there's so many people who have made such important contributions. We can't interview them all. It's a shame that they come on our radar under these circumstances, but they do deserve our attention. We don't want to shuffle anyone off of either this mortal coil or out of our disciplinary awareness, you know, because of the circumstances of passing way too early. It was relatively young. And it's also true the other way that the people that we interview for these memorials, we need to be interviewing them as well about their research and not just about their connection to somebody else. Yeah, that's the hard part is keeping it on task because I'd love to talk to both Mm -hmm. Alyssa and Peter at length about their own research and have for a long time. Absolutely. Hi, so nice to meet you. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you both so much for taking time, especially because it's immediately after the holidays and right after a sabbatical for you, Peter, which, like, it's not just dusting the, you know, your office off, but perhaps <laughs> yourself as well. <laughs> Dust the brain off a bit. Yeah. A little. Uh, to get back in a routine. So thank you both so much for being willing to talk about your experiences with Frank Marlowe and his impact on the field. So welcome to the Sausage of Science. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. Our pleasure. So before we, we do launch into that, though, we do want to give some context because we asked you both on, both because you're former students of his, but because your your research is relevant to our audience and interesting to us personally. So maybe if you could give us a short elevator version of what you do and how you ended up working with Frank, that would be a great way to start. Okay, um, so do you want to go chronologically, Peter, and you you can start? 
Yeah, uh, so, I, so I was an undergrad at UCLA. So like Frank had a UCLA-Cambridge connection and overlapping with him, it turns out, even though I didn't know him at UCLA. But I, I started at UCLA in civil engineering, took an intro bio-anthro class that flabbergasted me and drew my passions out in a different way. Ended up double majoring in anthropology and geography slash environmental studies. I studied abroad in Kenya and Costa Rica. Did an honors program in anthropology at UCLA with Rob Boyd, but also on my committee was Joe Manson and Nick Burton-Jones. And of course, Nick Burton-Jones was Frank's primary PhD advisor at UCLA. So it was a small world, you could say. My passions, though, as an undergrad were really built around the evolution of human social behavior. And coming out of that, I took a year off after graduating from UCLA before applying to and, and beginning grad school at Harvard in 97. But uh, in terms of the immediate overlap with Frank, again, I did not know him, interestingly enough, at UCLA, even though we must have walked this, the same hallways past each other time and time again. And then my relationship with Frank began in spring 98, and then more formally, summer 98, he was an applicant and finalist for a tenure track faculty job at Harvard. And um, so I remember the Java applicants, you know, coming through for their talks and so forth. Frank was hired as I was um, surviving my first year of grad school. And at that time, I was admitted to Harvard, uncertain whether I would pursue kind of a paleo-anthro perspective, say with David Pilbeam, or something more on the evolution of human behavior with, say, Irv DeVore, who was even winding down a career at that time, and Peter Ellison and so forth. Uh, and then Frank was hired, so I became immediately his first student. And then uh, that summer in 98, as Frank was transitioning from Los Angeles to Cambridge, I joined him in Tanzania for six weeks to get my feet wet with Hadza Fieldwork, but also as Frank's first student, kind of uh, helped get that relationship initiated as he touched ground in campus uh, that fall. How about you, Alyssa? So I would first like to start off by saying um, that both of us are so happy to be interviewed. And, and for me, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of the podcast. So this is very exciting. And I'm sure Frank would have actually gotten a great kick out of this. So I think this is very, very fitting. Why do you think Frank uh, would have gotten a kick out of this? Just curious. Frank had many, many hats, but he was very interested in, I mean, he was a filmmaker. So we'll, we'll get to that. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. But I just think that he would have been very interested in the sausage of science in general and would have been an avid listener. He was very interested in accessing science and distributing science in many different ways um, through many different channels. So um, I was an undergraduate, anth well, I wasn't an anthro major. I was actually a pre-med major. And I switched majors after my intro to human evolution class that was taught by Adrian Zillman at UC Santa Cruz when I was a sophomore in college. So go banana slugs. Mm. I was totally captivated and that was it. Switched my major and I said, okay, it turns out this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing. And my primary interest, um, I was very, very much interested in looking at the evolution of diet and started out looking at functional anatomy. So I started out doing dissections of non-human primates and looking at feeding anatomy and behavior. And then I realized when I started graduate school at UC San Diego that I was far more interested in human diet. Um, and I was far more interested in figuring out what we could learn um, about women and children's foraging and diet composition through working with contemporary foragers. So I met Frank because I was kind of on the market. I had sent out informational packets on myself. Um, this is before you did this sort of thing over email. So I actually sent manila folders, like <laughs> packets of information on myself with my master's thesis and like, like love letters to all of these um, people in our field. Pretty cool. Uh, hoping that somebody would say, yes, we'll take you. Because I had a fellowship at UCSD and I wanted to stay at UC San Diego working with my advisor, Margaret Schoeninger. But 
nobody was working with contemporary foragers. So I sent out all, I kind of blasted everyone with these packets and um, I got a few, uh, I got, I hooked a few. And so Frank said, meet me in Pasadena. I'll be there giving a talk at this sushi restaurant at this time. And I thought, what? Is this how this works? <laughs> so I drove in my, you know, crappy little car. I made the trek to Pasadena from San Diego and we sat down at a sushi restaurant and the rest is history. He was looking for a graduate student at that time who was interested in looking at women and children's foraging and diet composition. And I was interested in finding a field site um, with contemporary foragers where I could ask those same questions and test the cooperative breeding hypothesis, which was really just kind of coming on the scene with Sarah Hurdy's uh, Mothers and Others was coming out. It was kismet. And so after that sushi dinner, uh, which was in 2000, spring of 2004, I did not see Frank again until summer of 2004, when he picked me up with another student who was starting that same exact summer, Brian Wood, who's now at UCLA. He picked us up at the airport in Dar es Salaam. And that was the second time I'd seen Frank and I'd only had that one like hour and a half sushi dinner with him. So it was kind of, yeah, it was an adventure to say the least, but I showed up, I had everything and, and that was it. That was the first summer and I became his student. So I stayed at UC San Diego, but I did part of my graduate work at Harvard as a visiting researcher. But Frank was on my committee, but I never, I never transferred to Harvard. And by the time I finished my degree, he was, had moved on to Florida State. So you brought it up, basically. And, you know, one of the big things that everyone knows Frank Marlowe for is his work with the Hadza. And I was wondering if you could give some background on how he got involved with the Hadza to begin with. Like, what was the original goal and how he got into that field site as well? Because getting into any field site is not easy. And working with populations is a long, long process of building trust. Yeah, my, my sense theoretically is that the environment at that time was one in which we were seeing Kristen Hawks lead a charge questioning the roles of male provisioning. Is, is male provisioning mating effort or parenting effort? And you had kind of the man, the hunter view that had highlighted this as provision, provisioning as a form of parenting effort. And this was under, under increased scrutiny. And perhaps males were being less helpful providing for kids relative to, say, grandmother's contributions. And the Hadza are an ethnographic case study with both qualitative and quantitative data that uh, Hawks is probably best associated with, but it was really the team of Hawks, Jim O'Connell, and Nick Borton-Jones. So enter Frank into that mix, and with Frank's primary advisor at UCLA, Nick Borton-Jones, um, a theoretical impetus for this was coming up with ways to test theoretically what might be motivating male provisioning. And Frank had two, I think, empirical contributions coming out of his UCLA dissertation, and both were published in the late 90s. The first was to test whether or not biological fathers might provide more resources than stepfathers. By a, a view that male provisioning is mating effort, there should be no distinction based on genetic paternity, let's say. And yet there was. So um, biological fathers did more for their offspring than stepfathers. So this, this is one empirical piece that challenges a view that male provisioning among the Hudson included is only about mating effort. Rather, uh, males seem to disproportionately wish to channel their resources to their biological offspring, as you'd expect from kin selection, let's say. And then the other piece was camp size, that in larger camps, male, male provisioning patterns looked a little bit different in a way that might look somewhat like uh, some evidence consistent with some signaling in there. But that was how I would sum up his two key empirical contributions on the Hadza from his dissertation, and then he continued his work with the Hadza, quantitative, qualitative, deeply engaged, rich, long-term, all the good stuff that is the reason why I think he's so well 
associated with the Hadza and why the Hadza remains so important in, in many evolutionarily re relevant contributions and, and discussions. He, he broadened beyond male social and economic and reproductive behavior to be thinking about, like Alyssa noted, the role of kids, even though that was not his forte, Alyssa took that focus and ran with it in a way that complemented some of his earlier work. Uh, as Alyssa noted too, a great way to situate this is in a cooperative breeding framework. Hurdy was talking in ways that, in writing in ways that were setting the stage prior to her 2009 book, but book chapters and so forth that were kind of setting a stage for this. And the Hadza could be seen as sort of an ethnographic case uh, that could be situated in this with respect to perhaps even interchangeable roles to some degree between fathers and gr maternal grandmothers and so forth. And then in terms of other things Frank did with the Hadza, a, a lot of his formative work, I would say, came out of that bell at Harvard. Um, the late 90s, early 2000s, he built on his dissertation data to do some of the experimental economic work that we associate with folks like Joe Henrik, Rob Boyd, Richard McElrath, I remember Frank and Richard were going over their protocols for the dictator and ultimatum game experiments that were run in that summer 98 in a Dar es Salaam hotel room while I just <laughs> casually sat on a nearby bed. Um, you know, work like Alyssa said on foraging, he act, very actively interested in work on foraging, but also how do you measure how much is being consumed outside camp versus in camp and the methodological issues. Alyssa chime in from here, but I would say a few of those key pieces that jumped out for me from that formative critical period, I think, where he was tremendously productive with long-term impactful work. A 2000 uh, paternal investment and human mating systems paper, his 2005 evolutionary anthro review on hunter-gatherers and human evolution, a 2000 paper on the patri patriarch hypothesis, a 2003 paper on the critical period, and I remember Frank talking about this in a brown bag at Harvard uh, yes. before it would become published. That's but my you can favorite. just keep going. There you go. Yeah, Here's Alyssa's favorite. favorite. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the dates of these, a lot of these come out of this really fomentive late 90s, early 2000s period in which he just did tremendous work. And a lot of that work ended up being summarized and probably I think his best, the most important long-term impactful work is 2010 book on the Hadza. Alyssa, what would you like to add to that? That was very uh, comprehensive, Peter. Let's see if I can, <laughs> let's see if I can, if I can pack in some little spaces. Um, I think... One thing that I would really like to highlight is how it's kind of, I can't speak to when Frank started at Harvard. And Peter was, of course, his very first graduate student. And so I think that's something that is really cool about having uh, him as a guest on, on this podcast is, you know, he was kind of there at the beginning, uh, kind of ground floor. Um, and I came in in the early 2000s. So 2004 is when I kind of came on the scene, as well as his other students, Corinne Apicella and Brian Wood. And the three of us were there for the first summer that Frank took out multiple graduate students. So it was the summer of 2004, which Frank dubbed it the summer of chaos. And um, it, really, it really was. It really was the summer of chaos. There, were all, there was also a tech person from Harvard and an undergraduate intern out there as well. So there were five of us plus three or four research assistants. We had two Land Rovers. None of us had ever done, well, Brian had done field work before, but no one else had done field work before. We barely spoke Swahili. He dropped us off at Swahili school and said, pick you up in a few weeks. And wow. you know that was, that's kind of how that went. Everybody <laughs> ran out of water. Everybody ran out of food. The cars broke down. Stuff fell off the car. I mean, it was I always, I look back on that now and I think, how in the hell did I keep like going back? Like how, what, 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 what hooked me? But I was in the field with Frank for just a very short time during the summer of chaos because 
he had three research camps um, running simultaneously and we were all kind of doing our stuff in each camp. But I, I look back on that and I thought, well, okay, I can't get any worse, right? I mean, like every <laughs> terrible thing that happened in the field kind of happened that summer. So it couldn't get any worse. So it could only go up from there. And I was hooked. I was hooked on the whole experience. And I made friendships that I still have to this day. And it was a very powerful experience. So it was technically the pilot study for my dissertation, but it was kind of an ancillary part of a larger project that Frank had going, which was his first really big NSF grant that kind of fueled a lot of data collection that kind of pushed him through the rest of that decade in terms of, in terms of publications and output. And it was Foraging, Food Sharing, and Family Formation was the name of the grant. So Frank and I had kind of a Venn diagram situation going. It's no secret to anyone who's familiar with my work that I primarily focus on women and children. Frank was not overly focused on women and children, so it was kind of a nice um, situation. I think that, that I kind of was able to cover his blind side to a certain extent. Mm. certainly wanted those data collected, and it was a wonderful experience for me uh, because it offered me an opportunity to establish my own field sites. I will always be indebted to Frank for introducing me to the Hadza and teaching me the value of uh, field expediency. <laughs> So what you do when you run out of water in the middle of the you know, Tanzanian bush. So he was wonderful in the field. And so one thing that I would really like to talk about is how much he loved being in the field. I always think about that as his happy place. And I had kind of a different relationship with Frank because I wasn't at Harvard. And once he left Harvard and went to Florida State, he um, had additional graduate students. So he had Colette Burbesque at Florida State. And then when he went on to Cambridge University in the UK, where he finished his career, he had additional graduate students as well. And the graduate student, his last graduate student that he had was um, Duncan Stibbert Hawk, who is still publishing on data that, that he collected under the auspices of Frank. We're still experiencing kind of the Frank Marlowe impact um, on the field. And I think that it will continue now um, we have, there's so much data, so, so, so much data. And we'll just see, you know, as it, as it starts coming out, uh, there is a good decade there. And we're still going to be seeing his name, I think, um, as an author on publications, or at least in the acknowledgments for years to come. And I know that all of his former students are still working on projects that started with Frank. So mm -hmm. I think, I, I wish that he were around um, so that he could see kind of how far reaching that impacts. The way you frame it is the way I thought anthropology would be and is for everyone, right? As a first-generation college student that you have these people who have all these students who have a great field site who have these tremendous legacies. And we know that's not true. We know a lot of people, whether they do or don't have grad students, do or don't want grad students, do or don't have a good field site and supportive resources makes all the difference in the world in terms of legacy. So what we're talking about is someone with a tremendous legacy across a site and numerous institutions. And Peter, especially as his first grad student and then having some comparison, I'm curious about your experience with him as a mentor. One of the things we talk about on this show is hacks for succeeding in academia, right? So you touched on a few of the things about overcoming some adversity in the field, but I'm curious what you saw in him as a mentor, maybe what was great that you've adopted into your own approach to mentoring students and maybe what you've learned that you do a different way because of that experience. And no slight to him, because we all, I think, have that trajectory in our careers. It's really interesting to reflect on this. I'm mid-career. 
I'm wondering what's next. I'm no longer actively reading the Hadza literature or hunter-gatherer literature, no aspirations to go back. So I'm in a different stage, far removed from all this, with a degree of disconnect that is born out of the time since. And as I look back on that formative, really, life stage for me, in addition to that really vibrant period in grad school, a, a really awesome time with my then girlfriend, now wife, what did Frank mean amidst all that stuff? I think there's uh, an argument that team mentoring is worth pursuing. And I would say as a grad student at Harvard, I had I, I was a product of what I like to call partable paternity. So Frank <laughs> was one of my fathers, Peter Ellison, my second father. And I really was, you know, you know, mix it in and stir it up mostly from those two. And then also Richard Rangham and Cheryl not to uh, ensure that I thought about primate, particularly ape comparisons, also female, male, broader um, considerations. And Frank had a lot of strengths. I think uh, some of the strengths that impacted me over the years were the ability to informally chat with him about anything and about his love for ideas. And if he wanted to drop into his office in the Peabody Museum and get sucked into a whirlwind of discussion that might go on for hours, how many academics have the time for that? He was one who did as effectively a single person living in Cambridge with more time than, than most of us did have at that time for socializing. You had an open game for discussions, and that allowed me to sort of mentally explore terrain that ended up being part of my long-term thinking and no doubt shaped, for, exa for example, eventually co-authoring a book on fatherhood. That book does not come out if it's not for Frank, Peter, and others in that milieu. At the same time, Frank was on a different schedule. He was less constrained and concerned. He, he had the tenure clock, yes, but I remember calling him once from Disneyland with my girlfriend to ask, is there any update to the Tanzanian research permit delays that we're waiting on? This ended up extending two and a half years. So after that summer with Frank, I submitted grants, initially rejections uh, all around, and then uh, eventually got Leakey Foundation funding for what was supposed to be a year's fieldwork, doing work on Hadza women's costs and benefits to pair bonding. And I was ready to go. And this extended, again, for two and a half years. And finally, in the midst of a life in which you say, how long is this worth holding on for? I moved on to what was then a backup project mentored uh, with, by Peter Ellison on testosterone and male family life. But there's a different version of me. Things worked out differently in which I'm probably more like Alyssa's shoes, still going back to Hodzalam, but I'm not. I, Frank did not have the urgency that I had where it's like, you know, you have a limit to how long you're, you're willing to put in some of this stuff before it's just time to kind of move forward with your life. What else would I say? In the field, he was terrific. So I had spent a summer or a semester abroad in Kenya as an undergrad. Like Alyssa, I threw myself into the fire of Swahili at the Boston Language Institute rather than in Tanzania. Once I knew I was going with Frank that summer and I was going from nothing. So I had a, a, an instructor who was a grad student from Tanzania at Boston University who taught me my first Swahili. Nonetheless, I went in with very little grasp. And nonetheless, Frank was just terrific in the field. I'd had some experience in East Africa. I was really passionate, really ready to go. And I think that mashed and meshed, meshed really well with him. Um, but he, as Lissa said, was very comfortable in the field. And I think he was most comfortable there rather than academic hallways. And you saw him at his strength. He was just terrific with people, very informal. He'd walk around with his flip-flops making these little sounds. Does that sound familiar, Alyssa? <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the pocket protectors. Pocket protectors, yeah, all these little things. <laughs> Always had just, pens, yeah. Yeah, he was ready to go in his dirty notebooks and so forth uh, with, again, the red dust on them. But he was really at his home there, and anyone who spent time with him in the field benefited from that because you could pick up on that, and it was going to make you better because you could see how attentive and interested and engaged, and all of that was great for training. Those are a few things. I will say also, as I, as I moved on from Hadza work, many of those conversations with Frank ended up, I think, being part of 
what was uh, really a mutually beneficial exchange that helped set the stage for his NSF grant too. There were discussions about the evolutionary models to costs and benefits to pair bonds that were part of what would become his NSF grant. So again, I benefited tremendously from all of that, but some of that stuff was very much tied into a lot of his academic contributions. And even though I didn't go, ironically, as an NSF-funded student of his, many of those conversations, I think, segued into what became a, a huge body of impact and Alyssa and others taking forward that mantle. Yeah, Alyssa, what about your experience as a student, either in the halls of academia or in the field? Any stories you'd like to share? Oh, man, so many. Okay, let me think, <laughs> let me think how I want to pare this down. I think, well, there's two things that I think are really important that often get overlooked, even when you're doing something like a fesh rift, you know, they get kind of overlooked. So one thing that I would really like to, to point out is Peter touched on it um, when he talked about how Frank was maybe less comfortable kind of in the hallowed halls of academia, you know, particularly at an Ivy League institution. And I don't want to speak for her, but I will borrow a point that Colette Burbesque, um, one of Frank's former students, made. She's at the University of Roehampton in the UK. And during an email exchange after Frank passed away, Colette said something that was so beautiful. And I thought it was so spot on. And she talked about how important Frank's legacy is, but for a different reason than what, what was mentioned um, already. And she talked about how important it is to really celebrate the non-traditional trajectories. Mm. So academia was his second career. He was a very well-known and very established filmmaker. That's how he started. Um, and then he decided anthropology kind of captured his mind, captured his heart, captured his interest. He went to UCLA back to school to get his degree and then went on to Harvard. And he wasn't hired at Harvard until he was in his 40s. As most people know, the Harvard tenure process is very difficult and most people <laughs> do not get tenure at Harvard. Um, and Frank was very aware of this. It's in fact, and I, I can say this now because he was very open about it. It's one of the reasons that he told me not to transfer to Harvard. Mm. He said, stay where you are at UCSD. Uh, in San Diego because he was going up for tenure the second year. He was going up for tenure the year that I, my dissertation year. So I was in the field for all of 2005 and that was the year that Frank was going up for tenure and he did not get tenure at Harvard and he had a very hard time finding a position and he eventually ended up at Florida State University in Tallahassee where he was very happy. But before that happened, I remember him telling me, I said, well, what are you going to do? He came back into the field. He kind of swanned in as advisors are wont to do, as I do to my students now. And just kind of <laughs> come on in for three weeks and say, how's it going? Can we help you problem solve? Say hi to our friend. You know, sometimes I have long trips. Sometimes I have very short trips. And this was a very short, frank trip. He just kind of came in to check on how everything was going because I was managing his project at the time. And I said, what are you going to do? And this is before he had the job offer. And he said, I have no idea. The only thing I know in this life is that I own my car. And I remember thinking, whoa, that is okay. That, that's helpful. That's, that's something that I think we all need is that even with this legacy, with all of these grants, with the institutions that he you know, called home, there was a point in time where he said, the only thing I know in this life is that I own my car. He then owned his first home in Tallahassee. So in his 50s, he became a homeowner for the first time. And then the anthropology department at Florida State kind of, it became tricky there. And there was a threat that it was going to become completely dismantled and he had to jump yet again. And it was a, a very interesting situation whereby Frank was then on the job market with two of his students. 
Mm-hmm. Those were some really interesting, candid conversations that he had with me. And so that was another interesting um, kind of chapter. And then he went across the pond and he had a lot of reservations about moving to the UK. And again, I, I won't speak for her, but I think that Colette Burbesque was the, the student and kind of the, the colleague at that time who he really was communicating with the most because they had both moved to UK in a very short period of time right after she finished her degree. And they found themselves in a very you know, different system. And when I spoke to Frank during his years at Cambridge, it was always kind of a mixed bag. Um, and it was at Cambridge University where he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so Frank did not have an easy career. It was very challenging. And he was very honest and very forthright and very candid about all of the struggles that he had. And I think that that is another very important part of who he was as a person is he didn't sugarcoat anything for better or for worse. Frank was a straight shooter, which, you know, got him into trouble sometimes. Um, but <laughs> we, we'll leave that there. Um, but life's about trade-offs, right? So, so I, I think it's really important to talk about that aspect of Frank. And I, I would like to share a couple of anecdotes. So he didn't actually wear a pocket protector. I, I used to tease him that he wore a pocket protector. He didn't actually wear one, but he always had a pen and a notebook in his shirt pocket all the time. May as well have been a pocket protector. I'm sure he stretched those shirt pockets out. But he always said, you have to always have a pen. It's ridiculous that you don't always have a pen. This is, you must always have a pen. And of course, I've, I've failed you, Frank, because I'm often <laughs> without a pen. I have taken many of his life lessons, both in and out of the field. And Frank, as a mentor for me, very much was a mentor on how to survive in this game. And he was very candid about how challenging it is just to keep your head above water. And so that was a very good part of his mentorship for me. Our theoretical orientations and even our research interests diverged from one another very often. So I think it's also a testament to Frank that he was very supportive of the work that I was doing, even when it was in some ways not necessarily of interest to him or um, in some few instances even contradictory to stuff that he was interested in in following. So I I think that's another important point to bring up. Before this interview, this totally switching gears, I searched for something because I really wanted to play it and I couldn't find it. And I was, I was so disappointed that I couldn't find it. But I was really feeling down about grant that had been, uh, grant proposal that had been rejected. And out of nowhere, Frank's response to me over email was he sent me a song. Sent me a song that he had written in graduate school. Peter, I don't know if you ever heard this song. It was called Homo Sapiens. And it was Frank. And he'd made like this, he'd done, it was electronic music. And it was just Frank in graduate school. And it was a song called Homo Sapiens. I don't know if it was a rap per se. I'm not exactly sure how I would characterize it. I wish I had it so that I could play it. But basically, the chorus was Homo sapiens, sapiens. And that was it. And it was Frank saying like Homo sapiens a hundred times in this really weird robotic voice. And this is what he sent to me to cheer me up when my grant was rejected. And I thought, Cool. Okay. okay. So <laughs> I, I definitely borrowed those aspects of his mentorship in my own mentorship style because I think it's important to, you know, be a human <laughs> to your students. And when they're feeling terrible and they're feeling downtrodden about something, it's okay to just do something kind of wacky, like, I don't know, be empathetic. So, so he didn't really know what to say or how to make me feel better. So he sent me this weird little Homo sapiens song that he'd written. And that's kind of who he was. So if we can find that, I think it needs to be 
the sound bed for this episode. That sounds. Oh, I'll keep looking. I'll keep looking. Keep, keep oh, I, looking. I have a hard drive at home that um, I haven't been able to unearth, but it may be on there. So all is not lost. I may be able to find the Homo sapiens song. Before we wrap up a little bit, you touched on it that Frank was a filmmaker. Uh, and I was wondering, because that might not be something most people know, because when you read all the work about the Hadza, that, that doesn't come across necessarily. And I was wondering if either of you had an idea or an opinion on how that filmmaking experience and point of view uh, may have impacted his anthropology. I don't know. Uh, I will say when I was in grad school, we did have a Frank Film Festival one night only. And there were a number of us as grad students, Martin Muller, uh, I think Alyssa, you know him too. Uh, he mm -hmm. attended as well and uh, a postdoc then at the time. And um, there were some kind of nutty and better films, a mixture of things. I think there was one, does this sound familiar, Alyssa, of, of Frank and some of his friends running around in rocks in a way that almost looked like it was 2001, almost a spinoff of something like, like that? No, but I no. saw some other. I saw some other. Okay, that sounds like the yeah. sort of movie that would give rise to yeah. a theme song of Homo sapiens. Yeah, um, there's a lot in Frank's, <laughs> you know, filmography that could have given rise to Homo sapiens. But yeah, I actually had a viewing. He did a viewing for a few of us in Florida one night of some of his films. So I, I was actually lucky enough to see some of those films. If I'm not mistaken, almost all of them were done in the 1980s. Yeah, at UCLA, and the, and, mm -hmm. and the film Menatic on uh, Ted, um, I think was the best known and the one for which he received some awards. And and this followed Ted, uh, a mentally challenged man in Los Angeles for several months. And Frank did that, I think, under the auspices of, was it Tom Weisner? Maybe he might have worked with him. Huh. I don't know. There, someone could tell that story better. But there, there was yeah. something interesting that happened in there. But I think one thing that comes out of that is Frank put people at ease. And that is a skill that could translate from filmmaking to the field. As an ethnographer, he put people at ease. Anyone who talked with him would say he is friendly, a conversationalist. Uh, egalitarian, a good listener, you always felt like you wanted to spill things that maybe you didn't spill to other people and you were not going to be judged for it. And that is, again, a skill that would translate across film to the field. That was certainly a strength. Alyssa, anything more you'd add? I would just jump in. I think if you can find it, if you can track it down, I think that Monadic is definitely worth a watch. For those film enthusiasts who might be listening, it's cinema verite style. So it was very much kind of like turn the camera on, let it roll, see what you capture. He was the filmmaker, so he put it together. You know, there's always your stamp on whatever you're creating and whatever, whatever you produce. But that cinema verite style was very captivating to Frank. And so I think that was kind of one of his entrees into wanting to be an anthropologist was taking that let me be a fly on the wall. Mm. That draw for him, that desire, I think very much was then channeled into going back to graduate school at UCLA because he was at UCLA where he studied film. So he completed his BA, he moved to LA, and he enrolled at UCLA to get a master's in anthro and an MFA in theater arts. And this is kind of where his filmmaking uh, took off. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out right now for people who are interested in learning more about Frank's life and, and all his film career, plus just everything um, writ large, the Frank Marlowe Archive. Mm -hmm. So people can, can navigate to that website. It's frankmarlowearchive.com. So all one word, Frank Marlowe Archive. And it was created by 
Brian Wood, his former student who's now at UCLA, Mike Gervin, and Frank's sister, Julia. And it kind of goes over his personal life and also kind of his impact on the field. And there's some, some really interesting anecdotes on there, some really beautiful photos of some Hadza artifacts. And it's a very nice remembrance of Frank. So I just wanted to make sure to plug that because I know that um, the creators worked very hard on that website and it's really a beautiful, beautiful resource. So people that are interested... Go oh, Frank Marlowe Archive. It's really fantastic. We'll definitely link it in the show notes, and it was a great resource for us, right? Yes. Great. We were just saying this in, in the intro. It bothers us to be learning so much about some of these wonderful people after they've passed, right? So we appreciate your time, and, and our goal is to get to know more people while they're still active, right? <laughs> and play a role and, and have more insight. But we've learned so much, you know, in just these few episodes of people who've recently passed about the arc of their life, right? Because when we read about them as students, or even when we work about them, we often get little snapshots of people. And we sort of, they seem to be um, epitomized by maybe a, a paper or a period. But everyone has a, an arc to their life. And hearing mm -hmm. about his artistic endeavors tells me, at least, a lot about his science. And one of the things that I value about good science is when it's creative. And I'm always interested in where that creativity comes from. And then also the ability to change ideas and change opinions over one's life and to not just be a one theory person that you're stuck with, you know, yeah, in, the, I mean, in the literature. I, I think that's, uh, that's a wonderful point. I couldn't agree more. Frank was also a really major audiophile. He had the most impressive, substantive music collection I've ever seen in my life. And you could just sit and play his records for hours on end. And he introduced me to a lot of really interesting music. And, you know, I think Frank had a different relationship with each one of his students. And I can't speak to that. I can only speak for our dyad. And we had a lot of conflict. We had a lot of challenge, but we also had a lot of mutual support. And so again, I think that speaks to Frank's kind of versatility in these social situations that despite all of the kind of rock, rocky roads we traveled together, um, in the end, I can honestly say that we had we had made peace um, with a lot of the stuff that we had gone through in our own kind of mentor-mentee relationship. One of the things that Frank gave me, this is kind of ridiculous, but he said, um, there was a Fiona Apple song and he said, you really need to hear this song. You really need to hear this song. You're struggling. And I was struggling with my own kind of identity as a scientist. I was struggling with, should I go? Should I stay? Should I stay at UCSD? What should I do? And I was, I was kind of flip-flopping back and forth all the time and I couldn't really make a decision about what to hone in my dissertation on. And it was just kind of a rocky time. And he said, you should listen to Extraordinary Machine by Fiona Apple. And he said, it makes me think of you. And I mean this as a compliment there's a line in that song that I have taken with me. It's kind of like this little touchstone I carry with me in my pocket now. And I thank Frank for this. There's a line in there where it says, I'm good at being uncomfortable. So I can't stop changing all the time. And Frank taught me how to be good at being uncomfortable and that being wow. uncomfortable is okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable in the field. It's okay to be uncomfortable in your career. If you're uncomfortable, figure it out, change something up. Um, it's okay to be uncomfortable in your relationship. It makes you Kind of yeah focus in in a different way so that kind of a weird thing to say in remembrance of him but i i really really do thank him for that i think i'm very good at being uncomfortable now and i think most <laughs> people who who have field sites are good at that on the physical sense but i think also frank changed a lot you know his life went through a lot of changes and he he rolled with those punches all the time and i i really have always admired him for that so I think that he has left quite a big imprint on the field. And I'm, I'm really happy that you invited us to talk about him today. 
you and Peter were part of an obituary for, uh, for Frank in Human Nature, which seems to be a collective of a number, if not all of his students. If you could tell us, we're going to, of course, link that in our show notes as well. Very briefly, as we wrap things up now, of just one, who put together that obituary, kind of how that came together. And then if you had to, in one sentence, because I'm going to make you do this, in one sentence, <laughs> uh -oh. sum up Frank's impact or what you believe Frank's biggest impact on this field is. The origin of that Human Nature obituary was uh, Louis. Alvarado, the assistant editor at Human Nature, uh, sent out a message to consulting editors. So I'm, a, I'm a consulting editor on the journal. And uh, he said they wanted to put together a memoriam or were at least open to the idea for Frank and also for uh, Napoleon Chagnon, who I know you've also covered in a recent Sausage of Science episode. And Alyssa uh, actually told me of Frank's passing. So I have not been in touch with him recently. It's been six or seven years since I even saw him in person as he transitioned out of academia and across the pond and other things. So through some exchanges uh, on the editorial board, we decided to put something out to say past students focused on the Hadza. We could also add Hervey Peoples, I would say, as someone who does evolution of religion with Frank, uh, but was not a Hadza-specific researcher. But we put out a call to his former students who worked with him in Hadza-oriented stuff to say anything you might want to add. And we took a different tact here. It's a memoriam that is more personal and it's student-driven rather than, say, academic colleagues, you know, who are tenure-track faculty elsewhere or, or saw Frank in that capacity. These were his students, so you get a different vantage point here. Also very personal. It's longer. I was wondering if we are going to get a lot of that cut off because of the length, but ended up sticking. That's how that came about. And thus, you'll find contributions from Besides Alyssa and me, Corinne, Brian Wood, Colette Burbesque, Duncan Stibbert Hawks. And there are other memoria floating out there. So Corinne Apicella put together something for EHB, Evolution of Human Behavior. And at the 2020 HBEST conference in Detroit, there'll also be a session mm. uh, honoring Frank. If any of you are interested in contributing to that, you can check in with Corinne or me. How would I sum up his legacy in one sentence? Boy. <laughs> One word, apparently. Uh, can I think about it, Alyssa? Why you? Can, no. You, oh, how dare you? you come okay. back? Oh my God. <laughs> um. Let's see. So I would say, for me personally, I think that Frank's biggest impact on the field was truly opening up the ways in which human biology and human evolutionary biology can be informed by a contemporary foraging population right now in the 21st century. Frank had a diversity of ideas, a diversity of methodologies, and a diversity of theoretical perspectives that he managed to weave together throughout his career. And I think that Frank's biggest impact is that you can be a Jack or Jill of all trades. And I think that he demonstrated that very well. He's not just known for one thing. And so because he's not just known for one thing, I think that that means he gets to be known for many things. Um, and that in and of itself is a legacy. And so I'm very hopeful that his students will, will carry that forward. And I know that that's true because I'm colleagues with Peter. And I know that, that Frank's kind of ideas and his that life of the mind is certainly something that I see in my colleague that I see in Peter, even though Peter doesn't do Hadza work directly. He still has that interest, that kind of love of human behavior and human nature. And, and Frank was a behaviorist. And so I think that his, his biggest impact is just a true love of human evolutionary biology and everything that that entails. And so I think that's something he passed on to all of his students. And so I think that's his, his biggest mark. It's a run on, but that's one sentence. Good. Okay. <laughs> Look, how about this? Let me, as I was reflecting, as Alyssa shared that, uh, how about... The story of a life, Frank Marlowe, Hadza, 
hunter gatherers, foraging, family formation, and filmmaking. Oh, <laughs> sure. Those are all <laughs> for the nice continents. Sponsored by curiosity and friendliness yeah. and open-minded and egalitarianism and blah 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 blah. And yeah, I don't know, man. That's that's. It's a tough one. Impossible. I think it's I think it's better that it's hard to encapsulate someone's life in a sentence. So no harm, no foul there. So to wrap up, we're going to link the archive in the show notes, but how can folks find out more about each of you and what's your preferred means of contact? Very easily Googleable. I know he's on Twitter. So what's your Twitter yeah, handle? At Peter B. Gray. Yeah. So you'll find me on Twitter. So I didn't, I, I am a total Luddite. My grad students have forced me to go into the world and actually start tweeting. I'm a horrible tweeter, uh, but I am on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me through um, UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas website. And yeah, we're both very Googleable. I will say one other thing because we happen to both find ourselves in the same department at UNLV. Um, I became friends with Peter, acquaintances with Peter because of the Frank Marlowe and Hadza connection. And Peter invited me to come give a talk at UNLV. And fast forward, that was my kind of foot in the door to actually get a job. So nice. really, uh, if it weren't for <laughs> if it weren't for Frank and the Hadza, um, I would never know Peter, and I would never have the career that that I have. And also, Peter introduced me to my spouse. Wow. So you know, really, family formation, cooperative yeah. breeding. Yeah. So <laughs> I, Frank uh, was integral in terms of really, yeah, my family formation, my mate selection. It all kind of goes back to Frank. <laughs> I mean, I think the lesson here and, and the lesson of our podcast is to reach out to folks and be social. I mean, we study sociality, but it's important in our careers and our networks are so much smaller than any of us had imagined. And, and Kara and I have discovered that through our podcasting. Yeah. Kara, speaking of reaching out, how can they find you? You can find me at Kara Akabak on Twitter and you can Google me and find my website and all that good stuff. Chris? And I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. We have been the Sausage of Science, sponsored by the Human Bio Association and the American Journal of Human Biology. We need to give a huge thank you to our producer, Caroline Owens, who makes us sound intelligent. Uh, <laughs> uh, and thank you both to Alyssa and Peter. Thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No, thank our you pleasure. So much.